Hello, and welcome to Head on History. I am your host, Ali Alomi. This week's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can grab your free Audible book or audiobook at audible.com slash headonhistory. Glad you could join me. How have you been enjoying the podcast so far? I've been having a lot of fun with this season's Other Islam's theme, kind of looking at the borders, uh, the regional borders, the temporal borders, and the thematic borders of Islam. Um, if you've been enjoying it, you can head over to the podcast app or on iTunes and give us a little bit of feedback. I'd love to hear uh, some reviews from you all. It always makes a difference to me. I love hearing what you have to say. I take all feedback on, and of course it helps the podcast uh, increase in this whatever algorithm uh, iTunes has so other people can find it. So share the good news, if you will, of Head on History by uh, heading over and leaving a review. Uh, this Today I want to continue my kind of multi-part segment on Islam and the Maghreb, which is really exploring North Africa, Al-Andalus, and Islam's entryway both into Africa, but also into Western Europe. Um, and today I think I'm going to focus on the history of Islam in the Maghreb, specifically North Africa. Now the conventional historiography of Islam sees the beginning of the spread of the religion with the kind of excursions into the Byzantine Empire vis-a-vis -vis the Levant, so into Syria, Lebanon, etc. Um, and also eventually making its way through Europe, vis-a-vis -vis the Ottoman Empire and, and other empires, into Asia Minor. But actually the reality is that Islam spread into Africa first before it spread anywhere else. In 614 CE, the nascent Muslim community was facing intense persecution in Mecca at the hands of the aristocratic clan known as the Quraysh. Now this group fled, a small contingent of them fled to Africa where they took refuge across the Red Sea in the kingdom of Axum. Now, if you're wondering why Axum sounds familiar, well, it's actually because we've discussed it in our very first episode. That's right. If you go back to season one, if you will, and episode, I think, one or two, you'll hear the topic of the Red Sea Wars, which is why, in my opinion, the historical context of Islam is so important for understanding its development. You really have to grasp what's going on between the Byzantine Empire and the, and the Sassanids, especially through their proxies in Arabia, if you're going to understand the rise of Islam. So if you see the Red Sea Wars, this kingdom of Aksum that had already made excursions into Arabia, that it had fought against the kingdom of Himyar, and now you had the Muslims emerging out of this kind of uh, this context of, of conflict and persecution, and then fleeing to the kingdom of Aksum, where they found refuge. That's super important. That's an interesting context. It also helps us understand the sort of relationship between Islam and the Byzantine world and Christianity. There's a reason why Islam saw itself very much so as an inheritor of the Byzantine Empire. Um, and it's because of this kind of relationship here. Anyways, the kingdom of Aksum was a Christian kingdom. It, it was ruled by someone called uh, King Arma. Now, we believe it's King Arma. The Arabic sources actually refer to him as Al-Najashi. So we're not quite sure who Al-Najashi is, but it's believed that King uh, Armaha is, or Armha 
is the the king that it's referencing so there's a little bit of, of confusion in regards to that what we do have are a series of coins these kind of coins in which there are three crosses on them and these three crosses indicate the church of the holy sepulchre now if that's the case if that historical hypothesis is accurate and it is indeed depicting the uh church of the holy sepulchre then this gives us a little bit of a dating it tells us that this happened roughly around 614 to about 616 um that these coins were minted during that time period and that that is the time period in which the Sassanid Persians and the Sasanian Persians had conquered the Holy Land of Jerusalem. They had taken the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, supposedly even taking the uh, relic of the true cross with them. So that tells us that it's likely Arma, but we're not, uh, or Arma, but we're not quite sure. So that that's that gives us some kind of hint at it, or a little bit of uh, evidence there. Um, now, most of the Muslims that had fled to the kingdom of Aksum eventually return back to Arabia when Muhammad migrates to Medina. They they go back, but some of them remained, and they settled in the areas around Aksum. From this time, we actually have two of the oldest mosques in Africa and probably in the world, um, even perhaps predating the mosque in Medina, though they might be contemporaries, we're not quite sure. The very first mosque is known as the Masjid al-Qiblatin, that is the mosque of the two Qiblas in it. This is in Ziyala. Now, what's interesting about this is it has two mihrabs, the two Qiblas. This is a fascinating site of memory in which the Qibla in Islam was pointed first at Jerusalem and then shifted to Mecca. These two qiblas is evidence of that history and transition. It's kind of a physical embodiment of that moment in time in which the qibla goes from, and the qibla, for those of you that may have forgotten what it means, is the prayer, the direction in which Muslims pray, the five times prayer, the salat. The qibla goes originally from Jerusalem to Mecca. This gives us, this side of memory gives us evidence of that shift. It tells us that the early Muslim biographies that talk about this shift in the Qibla um, are relatively accurate, that they, they bear, bear out in the kind of physical, historical material that we have. And it also tells us a little bit about that transition in that history, that there was this moment in which the Qibla shifts, and that means something for the community. So you have in the, the Masjid al-Qiblatin these two Qiblas. Um, we also find out from Al-Yaqubi, who's a historian uh, for in the medieval era, that Zayla becomes the center of Islam in East Africa, and it spreads all the way down down the coast and there's a series of sultanates that even arrive in the kind of islands and we'll talk about those in a different episode but that that is a, Zayla becomes it's not just a, a small little community but it's a community that spreads out the second masjid is known as the or the mosque is the masjid al-sahaba or the mosque of the companions in Masawa in Eritrea um, both of these are clear evidence of an early but small community of Muslims in Africa so that Muslims and Islam arrived in Africa very early on. We're talking 7th century, right? Early 7th century, which is 614, maybe even uh, a little bit later, and then continued to spread out. Um, eventually, the king of Aksum converts to Islam. Now, this is interesting. A Christian king converting to Islam. This ease of conversion is kind of one of the characteristics of early Islam that remains a point of debate amongst a lot of scholars. There's uh, Richard Hoyland on, on one end, arguing 
arguing for these kind of conquest narratives, the futu. Then there is the the work that is being done by Fred Donner that's looking at this notion of the community of believers. There's still a lot of us that are trying to figure out what, why is it that people were able to convert so easily in the late antique period and, and why this conversion happened and what does that mean about Muslim identity. I, in particular, am a historian of identity. I'm very interested in what it means to be Muslim. Who are these Muslims? Um, when we say Muslim, are we taking that category for granted in the same way that, or do we need to understand that it's historically conditioned in the same way that we recognize that, for example, racial attributes or racial characters, white and black, are historical ontologies? Similarly, is Muslim, is Muslim rooted in some type of historical context? I mean, we have the case, for example, of the Persian Asawira that I talked about in uh, Islam and Afghanistan, in the Islam and Afghanistan episode. There seems to have been where little requirement for conversion and the early conversion into Islam seems to be more likely kind of a shift in allegiance like, you know changing sides if you will than some type of personal transformation the way that we think of today and when we think of conversion we're not talking about like massive paradigm shifts but rather a weird continuity like okay I was originally a Byzantine now I'm a Muslim now that doesn't mean that con conversion was insincere but that religious the what we call religious or religion was viewed in a kind of holistic social term, not just a personal, emotional, private term that involved community, literal community building. So you would retain, remain within your community, but who was at the head of that community might sort of shift. Now, the political conquest of North Africa really starts under Umar, that is the second Rashidun Khalifate, or the second Rashidun Khalif in 641 CE. And it continues until roughly 680 with Uthman adding uh, Tunisia and the Umar expanding into Libya, Algeria, and Morocco. Um, Omar adds Egypt really early on, 641. The rest of North Africa with Algeria, Libya, and Morocco come really within a period of about 20 years or so. So we're talking about a really short period of expansion. Within about 20 years, all of North Africa comes under Umayyad rule, under Muslim rule. Now, conversion to Islam begins quite early on, as I mentioned, while the Umayyad heartland is kind of in the Levant, you know, Syria, Lebanon, etc. The This, this uh, political kind of formulation is really characterized by a series of garrison towns over there. So when we look at is the Umayyads in Syria, in Lebanon, in, the, in Iraq, what they do is they establish these garrison towns. They come in, they establish the small kind of military outposts, and they ch tend to not change much else. People continue living their daily lives. And so they're a, a very small minority surrounded by a sea of non Muslims, Christians, Jews, etc. And conversion is really a slow bureaucratic process more than it is anything else in that in the Umayyad heartlands. Islam on, in Africa, however, relies heavily on trade routes, just like we saw in Islam in Persia and Afghanistan, that it's trade that really brings about conversions. So early on, you have this guy named Ismail ibn Abdullah, who is the governor of the Maghreb. And what he does is he consolidates the support from the Berber population. And he does this by establishing an intercultural rule. Unlike kind of the earlier Byzantine rulers uh, who tended to be kind of heavy-handed uh, 
with a foreign governor ruling from seclusion in a major city. So you would have like the governor of, of Egypt would live in uh, Alexandria and he would be in his little palace, have his military guard around him and the threat of the military guard kept everyone in check and that, you know, that's it. He didn't have a lot of interaction with the people. Unlike that uh, and this kind of seclusion, the Muslims in Africa sought to create profitable trade partnerships. The interest of Muslims in Africa was rooted in a sort of financial need, in kind of material interest. That is, that Africa were part, was part of a series of very important trade routes. This was where the mines were, this is where a lot of the precious materials and minerals were, and so trade routes were very important. So they wanted to establish trade partnerships, and so they did. They created alliances with tribal leaders, and this kind of relatively equitable rule, uh, one that was at least equitable in the ideal, if you will, if not always manifested in everyday life, it went beyond the kind of civilizational difference and class difference that we saw in the kind of Byzantine Empire. Remember, race is more of an enlightenment concept. But we do see some notions of civilizational differences, right? The Africans are a, a different civilizations than the Romans, so to speak. That civilizational difference didn't matter so much for the early Omayyads. Similarly, with the class differences in an elite merchant class with the lower class peasantry, not as important. And so that was very high, that was very attractive to the Berbers, who saw this as a real partnership, and they became the bulk of the military in North Africa. In fact, when the Muslims invaded uh, the Iberian Peninsula and established Al-Andalus, the bulk of the military was made up of Berbers, of Moors, of people who uh, were really uh, came from North Africa. It wasn't Arabs from Arabia. You know, you had a small, maybe a small platoon of troops that would go there, or a small contingent of troops, but the majority were Berbers. And it's because of this kind of partnership, this trade-oriented partnership that um, was established. Now, popularization of Islam was further encouraged by the Abbasids. When they overthrew the Umayyads in the 750s, 751 or so, they inherited a massive land empire with super wealthy trade routes. These are trade routes that connected China to Africa, China to Europe. This is what we what is kind of colloquially or contemporaneously called the Silk Road. Even though that is kind of a misnomer, there was not a single road, it was the Silk Roads, and most of the trade didn't involve going taking stuff from China to Rome, but rather happened at kind of the local level, so that porcelain was being traded from Balkh to Herat to Bukhara, um, from uh, Cairo to Marrakesh. It was happening at, at these kind of, most of the trade was happening at this kind of localized level. But anyways, they inherited these, these trade routes, and this consolidated the routes that allowed merchants and theologians to travel really deep into Africa. By the 11th century, you had figures like Abdullah ibn Yasin, who was an actual Berber from Sanhaja. He popularizes Sunni Islam, particularly of the Maliki Madhab, and we'll talk about why the Maliki. And so what happens is, the Berbers start very early on, by the 8th century or so, they had become partners, partners with these Arabs 
these Muslims, these partners who eventually formed the bulk of the military, who formed uh, a part of the invasion force, uh, who converted, who saw themselves as intercultural partners in administration and in trade, and as a result of that, really started to convert to Islam. It was popularized by indigenous Berber preachers. These African preachers became the impetus for converting to Islam. Um, now, for example, Abdullah ibn Yasin was trained in the Malaki school of thought, and he uh, became a, an important kind of traveler throughout the, the African, North African region, where he would preach about Islam as a unifying force, as a force that would break away from tribal differences, class differences, civilizational differences, and create a sort of global identity, right? This sort of the thing called the Ummah. And this was attractive, right? It broke away from the kind of internecine conflict that Africa was dealing with, the kind of shifting of empires, and instead promised something more uh, lasting. And then he actually, as a result of his kind of preaching, he formed an alliance with the Lamtuna tribe, and he became the spiritual leader of the Almoravids. And if you're wondering who this dynasty is, this is the dynasty that was centered in Marrakesh, and it's stretched from Morocco all the way to Al-Andalus. That's right. This is the connection to last week's episode right here, the Almoravids. And what they were is they were crucial to turning the tide of the deterritorialization of Al-Andalus by defeating the Castilian and Aragonese fleet at the Battle of Sagras. So in 1086, the Muslim emirates in the Iberian Peninsula and Al-Andalus are facing increasing Christian excursions into their territory and led by Alfonso IV. We talked about Alfonso IV actually in uh, last week's episode on the uh, on Islam in Al-Andalus. And so what they do is the Muslims invite Yusuf ibn Tashfin, who is the leader of the um, Al-Muvarids. And what they do is he comes in in this great battle where he takes on both the Castilian army and the Aragonese fleet. What he does is a very clever tactic, is he divides up his troops into three divisions. He leads one division, he's got another division being led by Al-Mutamid, uh, Mutamid is an is a actual Al-Andalusian figure himself. And what happens is uh, the first division, Al-Mutamid, battles Alfonso IV, takes on Alfonso IV, and this is kind of a really clear, uh, at this point, it's not clear who's going to win, it's very evenly matched, Al-Mutamid himself is really injured. Yusuf waits, Yusuf waits, 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 and then in the last minute he takes his division and he circles Alfonso IV. This circling causes a massive amount of chaos amongst Alfonso's forces. When this chaos emerges, the then Yusuf signals for his third division to attack, come in and sweep in and break through the lines. This completely is a rout. The, the historians, the archives tell us that there's less than 500 knights survive and make their way back to, to, to uh, Christian lands. The battle be eventually becomes known as, uh, as Zalaqa, 
that is the slipperiness or the shakingness the argument being that two things happened one the ground was really really wet because of where it was and so the mud caused the troops to slip up and two because of the chaos that was in Suduka shaking within the army itself this is this turns the tide of the ba- of the kind of deterritorialization of Al-Andalus, the kind of loss of territory in Al-Andalus, and it puts a stop to it. Well, it doesn't return anything to Muslim hands. It ensures that the Al-Muravids continue their rule in Al-Andalus. So you have the Al-Muravids having dominion from Al-Andalus all the way to Morocco, this big emirate, and they maintain that territory for a couple hundred years. Um, Another really important, I think, case study here is in addition to kind of the Muslim emirate that is established from Morocco to Al-Andalus, giving us that connection of the Maghreb and, and Al-Andalus, is looking at the conversion of Chad and Nigeria. So you have a, the Khanim Empire. The Khanim Empire is a really ancient African empire that ruled in Chad and Nigeria. Nigeria today, Chad, Nigeria, and, and a little bit in the Sudan. Uh, the Nigeria and Chad has the largest population of Muslims today. And so the uh, understanding how they became Muslims is very important. What happens is roughly contemporaneous to, to Yusuf ibn Tashfin's battle with, with the European Christian army, um, you also had the conversion of the Khanum Empire to Islam. At 1068, so just about 20 years, if you will, maybe a little bit less than 20 years, one of the chief rulers or, or princes of the Khanum Empire, Humayi, converts to Islam, and he establishes the Saifawa dynasty. Now, this is interesting, because what happens is this is a top-down conversion. He converts, and it encourages his people to then convert. Islam in Africa was associated with wealth and prestige. Wealth vis-a-vis the trade routes that we discussed. Those trade routes brought in Muslim traders and merchants and all sorts of ideas with them. But it also brought money, goods, and importantly, books. Learning became a key way for social mobility to take place. And early on, you had universities established, like the one in 9th century. You had a very famous female merchant known as Fatima al-Fahiri, who established... Now, I mispronounced this university all the time, so let's see if I can pull this off. It's Al-Qarayuwin, which is a bit of a, a, a tongue twister because you're making a ween sound. Qarawin, which is a un- the oldest university and it was established in Fez by a woman merchant. Now that's significant, right? Here you have Fatima al-Fahiri, this, this female merchant who had collected all sorts of money who had ra- because of her uh, the trade routes that were established in North Africa, like we mentioned. The trade flow garnered and consolidated wealth. She then puts that wealth into establishing Al-Qarawin, this university in Fez. And that university becomes the oldest degree-granting university in the world. The structure of the learning, in fact, at this university may have inspired the European medieval university. Al-Qarawin, you'd go there to study law, theology, 
history, astronomy, mathematics. And when you mastered a subject, you would receive what was known as an ijazah. An ijazah is a permission to teach the subject. This was an indication that you had mastered the topic and therefore was granted permission by someone who was a recognized authority in order to teach. This may very well have been the inspiration for today's university degrees. The bachelor's, the master's, and the doc the philosophy doctor, right, or the doctor of philosophy, the PhD. All of these may have been inspired by the Ijazah. We don't see any kind of old, anything predating this with the degree universities, the degree granting universities. While universities and schools are, have existed in Europe, the idea of granting someone authority to teach and carry on that tradition is kind of, you know, unique to the Muslim world. Now, that doesn't mean that the structure and methodologies of the Muslim university also transferred into Europe. Not likely. While al Qarawin's degree structure may have transferred via Al-Andalus into the European medieval model, there isn't in any indication that the methodology was used. So, for example, rote memorization, uh, focus on language, uh, focus on a certain aspects of theology, a particular type of history that is based in isnad, that is, the establishment of accounts. None of those seem to have come through Al-Qarawin into Europe. Other things do end up coming into Europe, mostly philosophy that we talked about last week, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Al-Andalus, and then later on through the Ottomans as well. Um, through uh, the kind of Viennese merchants in the Mediterranean as well. But mostly it's a result, uh, it's really this degree structure that transfers over and then philosophy from Al-Andalus, if not the, the rest of. But the, the university is to this day granting degrees. So that makes it the oldest degree granting university in the world. And what's fascinating about it is that the law that you would study at Al-Kharawi'in was Malaki law. That is the madhab of, the, of Malaki. That madhab becomes the predominant madhab of North Africa, with some Shafis in Egypt uh, and then some Hanafis on the eastern coast, but mostly Malaki as a school, and it's a result of this university. So while what, we see, what we're seeing here is the rise of a particular type of learning that is institution-based, and the impact is massive, both in Africa and in, in Europe, right? So first in Africa, we see the spread of the Malaki Madhab. We see uh, education and learning becoming the key to social mobility. If you go to the university, you then become a, an imam, a sheikh, a alim, a, a scholar, and then you become a political and social figure. You're able to, um, you know, become a, a notable, uh, and that kind of this notable ends up in a political sphere. You become the leader of a tribe. You become the leader of a sultanate. You can even become a divisor. So there's a great deal of social mobility. It also has impact on Europe as well, uh, as its connection there is through Al-Andalus is very clear. In addition to kind of the structure of the degree gra granting degrees, we also see geography. The famed geographer Al-Idrisi, who actually ends up in the Sicilian court of King Roger, studied in Al-Qarawiyin. He studied there first, built his maps. His maps then would become one of the most important important aids for European naval exploration and during the Renaissance. So without Al-Qarayuin, you wouldn't have the maps that enabled the Renaissance's naval navigations.
the kind of maps that developed out of the Muslim world make their way into Europe. So we see a connection there. Now, what's interesting in this kind of story that's hopefully emerging from, from what these kind of piecemeal case studies that we're looking at here is that Islam in Africa, though it was patronized by rulers like we saw in the Khanem Sultanate and associated with prestige vis-a-vis learning and trading, as we saw in the case of merchants and uh, like Fatima al-Fahiri and the University of Karun, it was highly decentralized. Unlike the uh, heartlands of the Umayyad and the Abbasid dynasty, where Islam uh, and the scholarship was directly connected to the dynasty. That is, the you were a scholar because you were part of the royal court of the Khalif. Here we see scholarship was institutionalized, but not centralized. So that you would have institutions that would train scholars, but then those scholars would move uh, and were mobile vis-a-vis those trade routes. So the ideas in Al-Qarwarin and all these other institutions and eventually Azhar University in Cairo, none of them stay in the university. They spread outwards. And it's that spread outwards that really allows Islam to become popularized. So it starts off as a mostly top-down conversion, right? You would have a ruler, like in the case of, of the empire, Empire of Khanim, you would have a ruler who would convert to Islam because Islam was associated with learning, Islam was associated with prestige, and then he would encourage his people to convert. So it was a top-down. But the was also what made the populace receptive to the uh, top-down kind of conversion was the trading routes. Those trading routes not only allowed merchants to travel who would then create these kind of alliances. You would do trading with this merchant from Damascus. That would bring you prestige in your village or in your city. It's like, I'm making all sorts of money because I've got this partner, and this partner's in Damascus, and he's bringing in silk, and he's bringing in silver, and he's bringing in all these wonderful things clearly we are partners in this with this alliance is mutually beneficial in addition to the, that kind of procedure you would also have sufis coming into this area so in both kind of borders the kind of border regions and frontier regions of the empire in the persian world in afghanistan as i mentioned as well as in africa sufism becomes super important now sufism isn't a separate denomination as we've mentioned before but rather a particular set of practices, tasawwuf, within Sunni Islam, though some of it can also fall under Shia Islam, mostly under Sunni Islam. And the tasawwuf practices, these kind of ecstatic and meditative practices, find themselves to have sympathy with indigenous African traditions. And so there is this mutually dialogic process in which the people are engaging with Islam vis-a-vis these popular preachers, many of whom kind of carry um, uh, legendary uh, characteristics. They become these kind of miracle workers, performing healings and miracles um, within the the Af- within the African trade routes, right? Going around, praying over people, writing amulets in particular. There was a particular type of amulet that becomes popular known as um, the the Tawiz. The Tawiz is a, is a written amulet in which uh, a scholar or preacher or a mystic like a Sufi would write a certain kind of coded inscription or Quranic inscriptions on paper and fold it up and place it into a leather pouch and that would grant certain mystic powers to people. This Tawiz and this kind of popularized Islam, we still have kind of traces of it within the African-American community today and 
and even in the African community that arise in uh, the United States. If we look at the kind of the origins, the early Africans that were brought over as slaves, that were kidnapped uh, by the transatlantic slave trade and, and brought over as human labor, as chattel slavery, you would find amongst the population certain respected leaders called bookman. Bookman. And that literally bookman generally meant that the ancestor was trained at a Muslim university and versed specifically in Arabic. The idea being that Muslim became associated with literacy, that you would become literate. And that literacy didn't just grant you um, sort of cerebral knowledge, that it would grant you knowledge about the world and knowledge about theology, but it would grant you practical knowledge, that is, the ability to heal the sick, the ability to protect from thieves, the ability to write these talismans, the ability to become a judge that had these kind of, that would uh, adjudicate the rightful way in order to deal with, for example, uh, burglary or marauding, that there was a sort of learning that produced practical power as well as sort of intellectual intellectual power. That legacy still remains to this day. The, the last name of Bukman is found in places like Haiti and Brazil. Um, and we find some among some of the slave records, people become, um, being called uh, Bukman. Or in the case of, for example, the Sapelo Islands in which uh, in North Carolina with the Gullah Geechee people who are founded by a slave named Bilal. Bilal was a Muslim who uh, then whose descendants kind of fuse certain Islamic components with Christianity, and it becomes African-American Christianity in North Africa and the Sapelo Islands. If you look at, for example, the practices of the Gula, and you look at the practices of the Geechee, for example, the taking off of your shoes to go into a church, that's the, very similar to taking off your shoes uh, to go into uh, a mosque, or the idea that all churches amongst the Gulu and the Geechee have to be directed towards the sun or the east, right? That is very much this idea of the qibla that you find in the masjid. Even the ring shout, the gula ring shouts, are uh, re resemble a lot the physical activity of zikr amongst the Sufi orders that take root in Africa. So you see these kind of traces of that history still very much alive today, and it comes out of a particular unique expression of Islam in Africa. That is an Islam that started as a top-down conversion associated with prestige and literacy and trade routes that created these sort of uh, mutually beneficial alliances and friendships and partnerships uh, for trade, but then also was popularized as, as a result of, of popular preachers vis-a-vis -vis the Sufis. And these orders, because this kind of there was a decentralization of, of Islam in North Africa, uh, these orders, specifically the Qadriya order um, and the Chisti order, all established themselves in Africa, and they become the center of Sufi practices. In fact, today, a lot of Sufism while is found in Africa and in the Persian world, because those are the two areas in which Sufism really was allowed to develop. Again, when I refer to Sufism, I refer not to a separate sect. And the most North Africans at this time period are a Sunni Muslim of the Malaki Madhab, but rather of a series of spiritual practices that become adopted. And really, those spiritual practices are popular religion, have a lot of 
connections with popular religion. Practices that even if you weren't Muslim, you would find Africans would seek it out. So if you were you were a Yoruba in Nigeria, um, you might seek out a bookman to write you a talisman, a, a tawiz. Or you might seek out a bookman who would uh, be able to interpret your dreams for you because he was learned the science of dreams at Al-Qawriyun. Or you would seek out um, a, a Muslim Sufi in order to perform a healing for you and he would hold a series of zikr, a sort of chanting, a remembering a chant that the Sufis practice. And that, that really kind of proximity between these communities, between the Muslim and the non-Muslim community, really epitomizes Islam in Africa. That the history of Islam in Africa is not one of garrison countries, of garrison cities, of forced conversions, of, of this kind of aloof religion, but rather of a religion that builds partnerships that are intercultural, that that build on, on indigenous traditions, the uh, act of singing and drumming which was popular in North Africa, easily is absorbed into the Sufi order of the Qadriya, who then continue the drumming and singing practices, but fuse it with Islamic elements. And so you have the birth of things like the Al-Burda. I think I'm going to end it here because I think this story is the perfect encapsulation of what the process of conversion is and really kind of explaining Islam in, in uh, Africa. So the Qasidat al-Burda is a very famous poem, probably the most famous poem in Sunni Islam. Um, and it was written by a man named al-Busiri in the 13th century. Al-Busiri himself was a Berber, and he was from the the very tribe quite early on uh, that we talked about with um, uh, Abdullah ibn Yasin, the Berber tribe of Sanhaja, that exact same tribe, the, the very tribe that was instrumental to converting most of Africa to Islam, that's where al-Busiri is from. Now, al-Busiri trains as a classical scholar in theology and law at a university. He then arrives in Egypt in Cairo, where he is the uh, patronized by the vizier Ibn Hina. That's a very key important aspect of this, is that he is uh, patronized, that he's not just you know doing his own thing, but there is an actual prestige to him being a scholar. Him coming from this very small tribe, converting to uh, him coming from this very small tribe, uh, becoming a scholar, lands him a cushy gig. This cushy gig in Egypt under Ibn Hina, he ends up becoming quite sick. Now, he travels from Morocco to Egypt, and he ends up becoming really, really sick. But in his, his sickness, he develops a series of praises of Muhammad, and he becomes a very famous Sufi poet. So he writes this, this poetry known as the Qasida al-Burda, in which he has a dream in which Prophet Muhammad comes to him and places his mantle. Al-Burda means mantle or cloak. Places his cloak over him, and he wakes up in the morning, and he's completely healed. The Qasidat al-Burda becomes the kind of uh, praise of that mystic experience that he has. He writes this poem. The poem then becomes massively popular amongst the uh, Sufis in North Africa, specifically the Sufis in 
Egypt known as the Shadaliya order. The Shadaliya order adopts a lot of the 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 burda. The burda gets praised in these kind of big circles where Muslims would sit around and they would recite this poem that is like verse hundreds upon hundreds of verses, and they would recite it over and over again with music and drums and repetition, and it became a sort of mantra. Not only that, but then the certain verses would be written down on paper as a healing talisman that you would carry on your body in order to heal an ailment or a sickness. That poem becomes the most important poem in the Muslim world to this very day. And I think the story of the Al-Burda and Al-Busiri is really encapsulates Islam in Africa well. You have a man from a small village who goes and learns classical Arabic learning and that classical arabic learning becomes an a part uh becomes the the key to his social mobility he lands a cushy gig in egypt where he's patronized by a vizier he is both a classically trained sunni scholar in law as well as a practitioner of mysticism or sufism to so with these sort of internal spiritual disciplines he writes this poem that is very classically arabic but also that the entire process is dialogical that it's not just arabs coming into africa converting people both top down or creating alliances but that the arabs and and islam itself is shaped by berber culture the introduction of drums the introduction of music the introduction of certain talismanic practices popular religion the decentralization of islam focused on uh, circuits of knowledge that is all the influence of africa on islam so i'm going to end it here i hope that you enjoyed it this was a really interesting podcast this is part two of my kind of Al-Maghrib series. This is Islam in Africa. We are going to continue it with the next series. We're going to take a closer look at bringing all of these together, the Maghrib and Al-Andalus, and look at you know, really at the, con- the global contributions of both of these moments and how they in turn shaped Islam and Islam in turn shaped these regions. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you want, you can hit me up with, on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I, both on Instagrams and on the Twitters. Um, I'm more than happy to hear back from you. You can use the hashtag Head on History. Otherwise, I hope that you have a wonderful day and stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Mm-hmm.